If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. He was a very nice, calm gentleman that you just never really expected him to be someone who would be willing to crash into an enemy target. But only 75, 80 years ago, he was just that. That was Mariko Oi discussing her encounters with kamikaze pilots. Listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. We're the UK's best selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History Magazine. Today we're going to be talking about the kamikaze raids of the Second World War which saw thousands of young Japanese men fly their aircraft into enemy targets in suicide missions that also left thousands dead on the Allied side. The kamikaze are the subject of a new documentary on BBC World Service, in which the presenter, Mariko Oi, speaks to some of the few surviving pilots whose missions did not actually end in death, and asks them about their experiences in the war and their motivations for offering their lives in this way. I caught up with Mariko a little while back to find out more. I think here in Britain, people have a hard job of understanding why the young Japanese people would have volunteered um, for suicide missions such as this. Um, what insights have you got into why people did it from making this programme? To be honest, I think young people in Japan today uh, also struggle to understand why those pilots were willing to die for the country in the name of the emperor. Um, it's only several generations ago. My own grandfather, um, he made bombs that were fitted to kamikaze planes. And I only found out when I was making another history documentary for the BBC. Um, but even within those several generations, you just really struggle to understand why they did it. And, you know, luckily for me, I can still ask him directly. But as you can imagine, a lot of those pilots who went on those suicide missions didn't survive. So you can easily almost manipulate is probably not the right word. But it was quite astonishing that their motivation was almost used as a political tool to suggest what they were, what their real intentions were. And there have been several movies that have been made about them. 
and they were treated as heroes. So when I asked several young Japanese people today whether they would consider doing it and what would be the, you know, what would be one word to describe those kamikaze pilots, one of them said heroic or um, courageous. The other two said stupidity and uh, they were irrational or something. Um, so opinions are very split. And what I discovered by making this documentary was that those kamikaze pilots were almost used as a, a political tool for decades after the end of the Second World War, because at the end of the war, when the Allied forces led by America um, came to Japan and occupied the country for seven years, they were quite fearful of why those young men could actually drive themselves to die for the country. So they went after their reputation and when the Allied forces left, their reputation was the first thing that some of the, the nationalists went after to, to win back the, the reputation, you know, respect and honour that they thought should be restored in their reputation. I spoke to two survivors of kamikaze missions. Um, one of them was supposed to go, but... His turn never came and the war ended and he was gutted. The other person, his engine uh, malfunctioned, so he had to come back. And it was very interesting because they were, their views were completely almost the opposite. So uh, the guy whose engine malfunctioned, he said he never wanted to die. He didn't want to volunteer. But on paper, he was considered to have volunteered because... You know, he was asked in a big group of him and his colleagues that his unit is now a kamikaze unit. And if anyone had objection that he didn't, they didn't want to go, then they could put their hands up. And, you know, as a, as a young soldier trained to fight for the country, no one could be, I guess, brave or no one could be honest, even if they didn't want to die, to say that they didn't want to volunteer. So he was really happy that he survived, even though he was a bit worried about how it might be perceived by others. So, you know, his view is that despite, contrary to what many people today think, many pilots who died actually didn't want to die. That was his view. The other gentleman that I spoke to, he said that he was totally disappointed that he couldn't die for the country because it was really genuine, pure belief as a young man that he needed to do this in order for his country to, to win the war. And he was very strong when I asked how he felt about how kamikaze pilots are now used as a comparison or parallel to extreme jihadists, those suicide bombers, he said, you know, it was it was my youth. Kamikaze was my youth. And it's really disheartening to see how it's almost been manipulated by the later generation. I kept asking him, you know, if he had any second thought when he was told to go. You know, his mother travelled for hours to go and see him the night before he was supposed to take off. And, you know, he said he was really surprised to see her. He was very happy to see her, but he didn't really feel that he didn't want to die or any of the 
I guess, you know, the natural feelings that I thought he might have. So, you know, to be honest, I couldn't, I still don't know where that kind of genuine belief came from. You could call it brainwashing, you could call it radicalization, but at the same time, when the war ended, he basically became a soldier in another way to rebuild the country's economy pretty much straight away. He said, you know, he was, he felt like the bottom of his world just kind of fell out and he just, he lost what he had to believe in life for for several weeks, several months. But after that, he just decided that he needed to move on. So, and it seemed like, you know, the emperor who he was willing to die for, the fact that the emperor was shaking hands of General MacArthur. You know, the emperor was saying that he is not a living god and that Japan now needs to live in a peaceful world. That was enough for him to be convinced that the wartime is over. So it was fascinating um, because he was a very nice, calm gentleman that you just never really expected him to be someone who would be willing to crash into an enemy target, but only 75, 80 years ago, he was he was just that. And even nowadays, does he regret the fact that he wasn't able to kill himself during the war, or is he now happy that he survived? I think it's, you know, he said at the time of the war, he was single, he wasn't married, so he had nothing holding back. Um, now he's got children, grandchildren, I think several great-grandchildren as well. So I think it's fair to say that he's happy to have survived. I've actually managed to speak to his granddaughter, who was about to give birth to um, to his great-granddaughter. And, you know, she was, she was actually saying that, looking back, you know, she, she struggles to understand or she struggles to kind of see him as one of those pilots, even today, even after hearing about it. But she also appreciates that her life, she wouldn't have existed if he actually succeeded. And I think he appreciates that as well, that he had this amazing family after the war. But even today, you know, when I asked him, how he felt on the day. Every every single one of them describes the day that the war ended as that day. And you're supposed to know what it means um, because it was that significant for that generation. And when I asked him about that day that the war ended, um, he said that he was just so shocked, disappointed. He thought that despite all the all the difficult battles that Japan had, he still thought that Japan would be able to win. And he said, you know, some of his colleagues and even junior pilots as well kept telling him that they should continue practicing, continue um, trying to bomb the enemy target, even though the war was declared over. And you mentioned before something about the comparison between modern Islamist suicide bombers and the kamikaze pilots. Do you yourself feel that that's a valid comparison to make? It's a difficult one. Um, I would say no after meeting them. But I think, you know, the reason I initially pitched 
this program's idea to my bosses at the BBC was because I was hearing some of the comparison in Western media and you know, you, whether or not you agree, you, you kind of, as a Japanese national, you kind of sit up and kind of listen again when someone says this is like a kamikaze attack or this is like a Pearl Harbor attack, which still gets, you know, those incidents get referred to quite often in in today's incidents. And you kind of sit up to think, oh, that was that was a Japanese word. And I kept wondering whether that was a fair comparison. I think... You know, I've asked all the people that I've interviewed and I do agree that it's a very different circumstances that Japan was at war. It was uh, the country's tactic, whether or not you agree with it, it was the country's tactic instead of the current situation where it's not it's not like one country against the other, um, although they would probably disagree. Yeah, it's difficult to make a comparison because you also realise that you just never know their real intentions until you actually speak to them. And I was fortunate to speak to at least two of them. But as one historian told me, it's been more than 70 years. It's, you know, it's human nature means that you might think that that's what you thought back then, but it might not actually be what you actually really felt, if you know what I mean. Because one of the kamikaze pilots said he didn't really care about the emperor, which really surprised me. But, you know, that really kind of made me feel like, do we actually know the true intentions of those suicide bombers today? I mean, all you read is what they've done and you don't get to talk to them. How they decided to to commit to that kind of mission, whether or not they really genuinely believed in the cause or whether they had no choice, whether they were so young and they just weren't really sure what kind of decisions they were making. So I guess what I'm trying to say is, you know, that was that was the big question that I had as I decided to make the program. To be honest, I don't have a conclusion about whether or not there's any similarities and whether there are any lessons to learn from it. To be honest, I think from what those former pilots told me, the way they de-radicalized or changed their mindset quite quickly after the war, it really was to do with the emperor and how he changed or his attitude or his, um, his statement changed which course Japan was going. And I think that's something that probably today's jihadists don't have. So, you know, in, in conclusion, we kind of decided that, okay, maybe, you know, initially I thought there might be some lessons to be learned. Now I don't think that there are. But it's an interesting comparison that I think a lot of people in Japan disagree with, even though we understand why that comparison is made because of the similarities in the tactic. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash history extra. 
Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I suppose the kamikaze weren't the only Japanese people during the war who, who undertook fairly suicidal missions. Do you think there are similarities with things that other Japanese soldiers did and maybe even other Japanese civilians? Well, I actually spoke to a lady who's now 85. So she was 13 at the time um, when the war ended. And that's because I wanted to know how they were trained, how they were educated and how they were trained. Because, as you say, practically the entire nation was willing to die for the country, for, for the emperor. You know, when there were rumours that American and Allied forces might land on the mainland of Japan to actually have a physical battle, they were trained to kill them with a bamboo stick. And I didn't know this until I spoke to my grandfather this time, but he apparently had to make some bamboo sticks as well. He's an engineer, um, you know, hired to make bombs. and But because they were... Uh, such severe shortage of staffing, I guess. Um, he had to make bamboo sticks, which he he thought was a stupid idea. But at the same time, it wasn't about whether or not it would work. It was about making sure that they have some kind of methods to defend themselves, or at least they felt that they had a weapon in hand. And so I think you're right that it's not just kamikaze pilots, it was an entire nation. And I think that's what still astonishes me, that you can actually educate through education, you can actually make them all believe that they should die for the country. And then shortly after the end of the war, without too many, or you know, as far as I can remember, there were very little protests, you know, no violent riots, etc. You know, without any of that, people just decided to realise that the war was over and they needed to move on and they moved on. And several generations later, you have a country where I think only 11% of the nationals are willing to fight for the country, which is the lowest in the world. And I think that's what a lot of people of that generation, of the war generation, wanted to achieve to make sure that Japan would never be in a situation where it would be involved in a in a war. And, you know, that's why we have the pacifist constitution and so on. But even then, the fact that today you ask any young Japanese people and most of them say that they wouldn't even consider joining the army and fight for the country. I think that rapid change is quite incredible, I thought. And, and do you think there was something particular about the Japanese culture or the Japanese psyche at you know in the mid-20th century that meant people were prepared to give up their lives so readily? Well, I think Japan, as you might know, Japan had closed its borders for several hundred years during the Edo period. And when it was practically forced to open its door and start trading with the rest of the world and, you know, neighbouring China, which it looked up as this very powerful neighbour, had been under attack and had been at war with 
the Western power. I think Japan felt that it needed to have a strong military to defend itself. And in a way, it was a very fast, rapid militarization of the entire nation that until then it didn't have any international interactions. So most of the public wouldn't have even thought of speaking to anyone from outside the country to suddenly having to defend itself. I think there was a lot of media propaganda to make everyone feel that they needed to actually rise up to defend their own country. Even the concept of Japan being a nation, I think, was probably new because until then it was about my clan versus that clan and that samurai family and I'm a farmer and, you know, it was a very different situation. So I think in a way, when Japan went into the Second World War and it had several very, some some of them lucky victories against foreign powers after it opened itself up to international trade, um, you know, Russo-Japan War, where Japan became the first Asian nation um, to win against Russia, European power. And of course, before that, there was also Sino-Japan War. China was very powerful neighbor. And then suddenly Japan managed to defeat it. Um, and then its contribution uh, in the First World War, where it was on the winning side. So it had a few steps where they felt like they were winning and they were managing to defend itself and that they were gaining a lot of power militarily. So in a way, it might have been quite easy to convince the nation and its soldiers that now we're entering another world war and we need the entire nation to rise up and defend our country. And also, of course, ahead of the Second World War, Japan has very little resources and a lot of the the imports were cut off. So I think it was in a desperate situation and it managed to convince the entire nation to have that mindset to fight the, the foreign power. And I think it's fair to say that media played a huge role, at, you know, at times when most people wouldn't have even had access to newspapers and radio. It was just about something that you kind of hear about that the government said. And I think it's also the Japanese mentality that even today, you don't often hear people disobeying the authorities, you know, I mean, they do protest and so on, but it's not to an extent that you would see in the rest of the world that I remember when I was covering the um, the tsunami in 2011 and there were many protests against nuclear power. And even then, I remember my producers from London just being shocked to see how peaceful those demonstrations were. You know, people were dressing up, people were playing instruments, and it was almost like, if you didn't understand what they were chanting, it was almost like a festival. Um, so I think that kind of mentality of not uh, not disobeying the authorities prob- probably played part in radicalizing, I don't know if radicalizing is the right word, but you know, changing people's mindset one way and then the other way after the war as well. And so you've talked already about how your grandfather's role in in this kamikaze story. How does he feel about it nowadays? He feels that it was an act of desperation that 
it just didn't have, Japan just didn't have any other choice that um, they were losing too many soldiers, too many planes. There were very few ways left for Japan to continue fighting. Again, you know, who knows how exactly he felt at the time, but today he said he was still very shocked to hear that Japan lost, even though I think as an engineer he knew the huge gap in all the weapons that Japan had as opposed to America. He still thought that Japan could maybe win. But straight after the war, when ordinary Japanese citizens were not allowed to travel um, without special permission from the government. He and other engineers were invited to the United States. um, And he still talks about this VIP treatment that he received that they even gave him pocket money to go around American cities. And he observed some of the, the latest facilities, what kind of weapons they had. And I think that was for him the moment when he realized that wow, it was very stupid for Japan to even think of fighting against the country, which has all these equipment that he, as an engineer, was very envious, but couldn't even possibly imagine developing in Japan at the time. So as a technician, I think it was an easier transition. I don't don't know if easier is the right word, but I think he kind of witnessed the difference straight away. Whereas I think for other people, for ordinary citizens, the the lady that I spoke to, this 85-year-old lady who lost practically her entire family, um, except for her father, how she felt so angry after the war. And she was so honest about it. She she talked about how how much she disliked the the previous emperor who, during the war, those soldiers were willing to die for how she felt so angry about him. So I think for her, it was a much harder transition, whereas I think for my grandfather, he moved on fairly quickly. And as as an engineer, he just got really excited about all these extra freedom that he had. And he focused on moving on. And for people like your grandfather and the kamikaze pilots you spoke to, Do we know what thoughts they had about the people that they were potentially going to fight and kill? Did they have any thoughts about that? No, I did ask, but they just kept saying that it was the war, that just like you would go into a battlefield and not really think about, oh, you know, what about that enemy soldier? He might have a family. You know, you you don't think about that. That's, you know, that's what they just kept saying, that it was... You know, we were at war. This was what I was meant to do. This was an order. There was no way I could disobey it. And that's what we did. So, yeah, no, not really about the thoughts on people on the other side. You've said already that young people in Japan today probably wouldn't wouldn't do something similar nowadays. But how do the people of Japan as a whole feel about this part of their history nowadays? I think it's fair to say that opinions are split. You know, as I mentioned, there were various lobbying groups, if you like, um, using the legacy of kamikaze pilots as a tool to persuade the public's views about how Japan's security policies are today. So, you know, the historian that I've spoken to, an American historian who's been living in Japan for 
30 years, and he started studying about kamikaze pilots after 9-11 because he was originally from New York and he wanted to dedicate his time researching about this to see if there were any similarities to which he dis- he concluded that there weren't many. But he mentioned how when he first came to Japan, which was probably around the time that I was born, a lot of people saw kamikaze pilots as a as, as a shameful part of Japan's history, that the country forced people to send their kids to die in the name of the emperor. You know, obviously, it's one thing for soldiers to think that they might die to having practically no chance of surviving by crashing into an enemy target. And people thought that it was a, a rational thing that the military ordered its soldiers, pilots to do. But then decades later, when nationalists started coming out, testing the water to see if they could change or win back the legacy of kamikaze and turn them into heroes who sacrificed themselves for the country. And in a way, they succeeded that there have been several films, you know, very successful popular films in which they were portrayed as just that. And I think in a way, even young people today who don't think that kamikaze pilots were heroes, even those who say that they were just stupid, I don't think they think that the pilots themselves were stupid. They, you know, they think that it was the government's policy or the military's policy out of desperation, which just seems so irrational today. And I think you also get to hear a lot from the family members or the um, some of the survivors. You know, I only managed to, we only managed to find two um, who are still alive, but obviously they're in their 90s. And, but in the last several decades or so, you know, those, some of the other survivors have been speaking out as well. And when you do hear their personal stories, you kind of compare the situation today that Japan is in, you know, I I was born in 81. So I grew up in a relatively wealthy country, you know, even if the news headline might be that Japan's economy has been in decline, you know, it was still very wealthy, never ever imagined that Japan would be at war ever again. And for a teenager, for young people growing up in a country like that, to be told that your grandfather's generation had to do this because of the military's policy. Um, I think you you get almost confused what to think because you just can't imagine. And I think, you know, some people might see them as heroes. Others think that, you know, never, let's not repeat that ever again. I think, you know, despite some concerns that Japan's neighbours might have because of the repeated visits by our politicians to Yasukuni Shrine, which enshrines the war dead, including war criminals. You know, every time that kind of visits happens. And I've once worked with a Chinese journalist about history education and how she thought that Japan was trying to go back to its military past. And I, I don't think that is happening personally. And I don't think many young people today in Japan think that that's happening. But I think there might still be some elements that want to treat kamikaze pilots as heroes, not young pilots who died for nothing. You know, they they want to think that they did 
what they did was an honourable thing. That was Mariko Oi. The last Kamikazes is due to air tomorrow, the 7th of November, at 1.32pm on BBC World Service. And it should be available on BBC iPlayer Radio after that. Now before we go, here's a reminder that tickets are still on sale for our York History Weekend. It's taking place from the 24th to the 26th of this month, and speakers include Dan Jones, Ian Mortimer, Michael Wood and Alison Weir. You can purchase tickets and find out more details at historyweekend.com. Okay, well that's about it for today, but please do join us on Thursday when we'll be discussing the Chinese contribution to the First World War. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.